Hi, I'm Daniel Ruskin. I'm Kylie Dossie. And we are here for episode, I think it's episode six, might be seven, of the Kylie and Daniel Policy Podcast. We're losing yeah, that, track of the days. <laughs> Every day blends together at this point with COVID. <laughs> anyway, today we're going to be talking about uh, government benefits. Uh, we're we're going to start by going over um, the various you know entitlements and, and welfare and other government benefits that are available to people. Um, then we're going to discuss a little bit about who receives them and the concept of the, you know, the so-called welfare queen. Um, and then after going over that kind of introduction as to what benefits are available, who gets them, we're going to expand on whether we think these benefits should exist. Are we spending too much on them, too little? Do we need to introduce new benefits? Um, and talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the sufficiency and you know, merit of all of these benefits that exist today. And then finally, you know, we'll talk about some other issues as well. For example, you know, even if we have all the benefits in the world, if people don't know about them or if there are barriers to access, that's something that we also need to address. So we'll talk a little bit about some of those access issues at the end if we have time. So I guess, you know, to start, I think it's probably good for us to go a little bit over um, what all the various government benefits are. So um, I know, Kylie, you did a lot of research on the healthcare, you know, housing and, and food. So I guess maybe you want to start with that. And then afterwards, I'll go a little bit into the more uh, cash assistance. Um, yeah, as well. yeah, absolutely. So like Daniel was just saying, um, I did quite a lot of research um, over the past week or so into um, the different kinds of government benefits that you can receive um, pertaining to healthcare, housing and food. So just to go over healthcare really quickly. Healthcare, the two most known ones that people know are Medicare and Medicaid. These are not the same things. People can qualify for both of them, and these are known as dual eligibles, which is um, about like 12 million people within the United States are about 20% of Medicare beneficiaries. So Medicare is a federal um, program that provides health coverage if you're 65 or older or if you're under 65 and have a disability no matter what your income is. And then Medicaid is the same federal program that provides health coverage if you're very low income. So these people who are able to get uh, both Medicare and Medicaid, these people will have pretty much no out-of-pocket costs. Medicare pays the first part of it, and then Medicaid will take care of the rest of this. There's also um, Medicare supplemental programs that um, will help out with any in-between costs. It's known as Medigap. And then each state sets its own eligibility rules for Medicaid and then the Medicare savings plan. These are within federal limits, but at the same time, the federal government oversees Medicare eligibility. So it's the same in every single state, but the state will set its own eligibility rules. So even if you have too much income to qualify, some states will let you spend down to become eligible for Medicaid. So say if you're not super low income, you know, you can pay some out-of-pocket costs, but you have a medical situation where you have to pay a lot of out-of-pocket costs, the spend-down process lets you subtract your medical expenses from your income to become eligible for Medicaid because you're being considered medically needy. So, for example, my sister has Crohn's disease, and she, luckily, she does not have to take as many medications as she did when she was first diagnosed, but Say if she still had the same amount when she was first diagnosed when she was about 16. My parents were able to cover a lot of the out-of-pocket costs, but now she lives on her own over in San Francisco. 
So if she sold the same costs as she did when she was 16 and now she has to take care of herself with her own health insurance, she could still qualify for Medicaid because they would be considering her medically needy with all of her prescription costs. And then... Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, are you, I, I just want to jump in with one thing if that's cool. Yeah. All right, cool. But um, yeah, I mean, one thing that you mentioned a little bit was, um, you know, how right, a lot actually is how people can become eligible for Medicaid and how there are, you know, income and means thre- thresholds for um, eligibility. One, I guess, interesting, um, you know, quirk here is that a lot of these rules are, have to be consented to by the states is what my understanding is. So with the ACA, um, you know, Obamacare, there was the option for states to accept um, this, this idea of the Medicaid expansion so that more people would be eligible to get Medicaid coverage. I believe it would be up to 133% of the, the federal poverty line uh, or up to 138% because with um, the 5%, um, you know, disregarded income rule, um, whereby, you know, someone can have 5% of their income disregarded when con- testing for Medicaid eligibility. So at this point in time, not all states have accepted this expansion. So it looks like as of early 2020, um, only 35 states in D.C. have accepted this. So I guess, you know, maybe it's worth talking a little bit about how with these federal regulations and laws that leave implementation up to states and that give states the option to not um, accept these changes and not expand eligibility for Medicaid and other government benefits, you know, how that affects people's, um, you know, benefit entitlements. Because if they live in, happen to live in the wrong state, and, and that means they don't get health insurance, it's, it's probably not a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. I remember speaking about this on a previous episode when um, we're discussing rural hospitals and everything. At the same time that a lot of rural hospitals are being shut down, these are in states that did not accept the Medicare expansion. So they're dealing with a lot of of different health issues. They're dealing with both their hospitals closing and then also people still have so many out-of-pocket costs and now they might have to go somewhere out of network. So these issues all kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you before. So No, no, you're good. Yeah, so that's um, that's a bit about uh, health insurance. I know that there is also something known as the Children's Health Insurance Plan. So This is for families who earn too much to qualify for Medicaid, but they still don't have access to affordable insurance. So this is um, also known as CHIP. So this will provide low-cost health coverage to children and and families that earn too much to qualify for Medicaid, but once again, they do not have access to affordable insurance. And this will also cover um, pregnant women in different states. And the cost varies, but you'll never pay more than 5% of your family income. And every single um, state has a plan with it. And it actually has been really effective in increasing health insurance coverage. You know, in 1987, around 60% of children born um, to these families had health insurance. Now that number is close to 90%. And it's also effective in increasing general health. You know, you're more likely to go see a doctor, you're gonna more likely be in better health as a teenager or adult if you're being covered as young children so that they can be taken care of a lot easier, you can catch things a lot earlier. And, you know, it has also lower mortality and also increases college attendance. And then 
But the economic effect, you know, eligible children will pay more in taxes by the age of 28 than by children who may have had private insurance or employer insurance through their parents. So that's also a really um, interesting thing as well. I've talked about this also in previous episodes, you know, government assistance and government benefits, as I'll continue to talk about um, with the other things that I've been looking into with like housing and with food stamps and all that, these really help out our economy. You know, people like to blame, you know, the fact that we spend so much in government benefits saying that we're just draining it out. Like, it's not to go back into the economy. As I'll discuss more, it actually really does go back into the economy because now these people are able to pay a lot more in. It's really interesting. So just going off of that, I'll go more into the idea of public housing. So as we all know, as we become adults and try to go and live on our own, housing is super expensive, honestly. And a Harvard site actually revealed that nearly 40 million Americans cannot afford housing. So usually the rule is that you should only pay about a quarter to a third of your income in housing. A lot of people will go more up to about one half to almost three quarters, depending on where you live. You know, if you live in a city like how I was saying my sister lives over in um, San Francisco, given she lives in the suburbs, but she still pays a ridiculous amount for a studio apartment. And it's not just San Francisco, you know, it's New York, Boston, DC, Chicago, like all these different places are massively expensive. So there are government programs to try to help out these people. There is the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which a lot of people simply refer to as Section 8. This is a voucher that you can receive if you're within the um, income limits and is based on your income, family composition, and the local prices. So say a mother of three children, she's a single mom, she wants to live in Chicago, she's going to get a voucher based on her income, based on um, her and her three children, and based on the local prices within Chicago. And this way, you don't have to spend more than 30% of your income on rent with this voucher. And it really does help out these people, you know, um, the government will directly give the money to your landlord, but you have to find the housing yourself in this way. So I remember working um, in the Congress office, I had a lot of people reaching out, looking for assistance and finding Section 8 housing, because it is a bit difficult, you know, you really do have to try to look for the keyword Section 8 um, accepted here and everything. And Another thing that um, the government will actually do is that they will give property owners extra money and grants to provide these low rent apartments to be able to help out with this. And then there is also public housing, which is when a city will build a public housing facility and you'll rent from that place as well. And you're checked out through your current and past landlords, make sure that, you know, you're going to be a good tenant, you're going to be able to pay up and all that. And, you know, again, housing, everyone needs housing, and it's incredibly expensive. So these benefits really do help out people. And a lot of the times, you know, it is, like I was saying, it's difficult to find within the voucher program. It's hard to find, um, you know, places that will accept this Section 8. So it is really helpful to always reach out, um, to your Congress office or your local representatives, they'll be able to guide you in a good direction. And then also public housing. A lot of towns will try to build public housing places and then 
bar it out. I know that my town is currently dealing with a whole battle with they're trying to build another, not necessarily public housing, but what I was saying before with um, property owners building low rent apartments. They're trying to do that actually just um, a couple streets away from me. And that neighborhood is really trying to fight against it because they, for some reason, think that's going to bring more crime and they're not going to be good people, which again, I've talked about this on past episodes as well. These aren't bad people. They just need help. You should help them. You shouldn't be judging them for this. But that's that's just a whole another situation that we'll get into also later in this episode when we discuss more about welfare queens. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more on that on that front that, you know, just because someone is receiving government benefits, it doesn't, you know, make them a bad person or make them less worthy of, of uh, you know, being included in, 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 you know, the human experience, right? I mean, they just need some help with housing. It's not, uh, it doesn't make them any less of a person. And, and one other thing that I think was um, interesting that you mentioned, and, and definitely an important point to pick up. Um, so for, um, for CHIP, um, you mentioned that, you know, eligible children end up, people who are eligible for CHIP end up paying more in taxes down the line um, compared to children who are not eligible and thus would either not have health coverage or might have health coverage that costs more or is a lower quality of CHIP. And, you know, you mentioned, so like the, the importance of this, and I guess the, the significance of this is that having affordable and comprehensive health coverage that allows, um, you know, people who are uncovered to see doctors on a regular basis and ensure that they're getting the checkups and healthcare that they need without regard to financial, um, you know, means. That means that these individuals are going to be healthier, they're going to live longer lives, and they're going to be able to contribute more to society in the long term. So in fact, every dollar spent on CHIP, um, the research shows that by the time um, covered individuals reach the age of 60, they recoup um, 56 inflation adjusted cents for every dollar spent. So that means that, you know, we're not just throwing money into a black hole here when we fund CHIP. We're not only going to get a lot of that money back, um, you know, we being taxpayers, we're not only going to get a lot of money back by the end of, um, you know, by the end of the day, but also this money is going to the economy economy to begin with. So like when you fund these government programs, when you fund these government benefits, you're not throwing money into a black hole. You know, when you're funding CHIP, you're at the end of the day, like the money that you're paying is going to you know, medical providers. So they're going to um, hospitals or doctors, or they're going to manufacturing companies who are manufacturing medical equipment or whatnot. And when you fund housing, you're you're providing people with the ability to live in housing. Um, that money that you provide them to live in housing, whether it's via voucher or via direct cash assistance, that's going to a landlord who's then going to use that money to sustain their lifestyle. And, you know, the person who received the benefit, the, the people who are taking advantage of Section 8 housing, they may then have more disposable income to spend on, I mean, food for their families or on supplies, cleaning supplies or on transportation or whatever they need to spend money on. So all of these benefits are directly going into the economy and they are like people are buying stuff with this money. It's not just going to a black hole. It is going somewhere. And not only is it benefiting the direct recipient, it's also benefiting the economy as a whole. Um, and I think that's definitely an important point to mention, but, you know, especially when we're talking about uh, you know, the cost or the, uh, yeah, I guess the expense and justifying the expense of a program. Um, and then one other thing I want to go into a little more detail about, you know, I think it was a really good point that you mentioned, not only can uh, individuals or low income individuals receive 
assistance with Section 8 housing and public housing, there are also more um, general programs where the government funds property owners to provide and to build and construct uh, low-income housing complexes. So one example of this is the low-income housing tax credit that's administrated by um, you know, Housing and Urban Development Department. And this provided, um, this funded over 47,500 project, projects um, in over 3.1 million housing units placed in service between 1987 and 2017. I should clarify, it doesn't fund these entirely, but these credits do provide a strong incentive for property managers and construction companies to um, to build housing units that are then going to be made available for you know lower than market rent. So by providing these tax credits, not only are we in you know kickstarting a local economy by starting building projects and creating construction jobs and um, obviously, they have to buy materials and they have to buy services to, to build these complexes. Those complexes are then going to be rented out at a level that is affordable to um, low-income people. So I think these kinds of um, uh, you know tax credits and, and vouchers and, and whatnot, and any benefit in general that's going to um, low-income individuals, not only helps those individuals, there are also wider economic effects. And I think it just has you know, a number of positive, um, or it influences a number of positive changes in the economy. So yeah, just interesting to mention, I guess. Yeah, no, yeah, um, no. I think that I think discussing, that. you know, trying to give back into the economy and everything like these government benefits, I'm going to go over a little bit more about SNAP and everything. SNAP um, actually gives back a lot in economic activities. So with SNAP, that is known as the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So this provides nutritional benefits um, to supplement the food budget of needy families so that they can purchase healthier food and also move towards self-sufficiency. And it is absolutely the most important national anti-hunger program. And it benefits roughly 40 million Americans. And we spend roughly $57 billion every year on this. But at the same time, analytics have shown that in a weak economy, $1 in SNAP benefits will generate $1.70 economic activity. So just thinking about that, you know, we're currently in a rather weak economy. By giving back in the SNAP benefits and being able to, you know, offset a little bit of um, a family spending and everything by making sure that they're able to purchase healthier foods and able to take care of their children, it actually is really helping our economic activity for a lot of the reasons that we've mentioned before, you know. By giving these um, children healthier foods, you're going to keep them in better health. They're going to live longer lives. They're going to be able to give more into the economy later on, especially, you know, healthier eating. We've all read the studies that, you know, healthier eating and healthier habits will lead to, you know, better sleep schedule, better grades and everything. Just think about that, you know, by helping give in the SNAP, these kids are going to be more likely to go off to college. They're going to be more likely to get higher paying jobs, pay more into taxes. So this does a lot. And I also just want to discuss um, what SNAP benefits will get you and what it doesn't get you because there tends to be a lot of misconception about um, what people can receive off of SNAP benefits. So it can be any food for the household, you know, fruits and veggies, meat, dairy products, breads, like snack foods, seeds and plants so that you can also produce your own food. But at the same time, you can't use SNAP benefits for, you know, 
beer, wine, cigarettes, vape products. You can't get um, vitamins and supplements. Can't get hot foods. You can't get, you know, pet food, cleaning supplies, hygiene products, all that kind of stuff. So I feel like that's really important to mention because as we're going to discuss more into the whole welfare queen idea, there has been a lot of misconception because that ever since that idea was introduced on what SNAP will actually get you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something important to mention. And, and, you know, we'll talk about it a little more later in the episode, but a lot of ideas underpinning the concept of the welfare queen are, are fundamentally misinformed. You know, when you hear stories of people buying, you know, uh, like fresh lobster and filet mignon, I can't even pronounce it, filet mignon, mignon, whatever. You can tell how, how um, savvy of an eater I am. But when you see people, like stories of people buying filet mignon with their SNAP benefits, you know, this stuff often does not happen. Um, so I, I think it's definitely something that we will we will talk about um, in a little more detail um, later in the episode. But yeah, oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, I was just going to explain a little bit into um, what WIC is because people have actually been um, I've been noticing on the internet people have been um, discussing WIC a lot and in very good ways. So I just want to go a little bit into that. So that is the special supplemental nutritional program. And this is geared towards women, infants, and children, which is where the WIC comes from. So this actually serves about half of all infants that are born in the United States and provides federal grants to states to provide supplemental foods, you know, healthcare referrals and nutrition education for low-income pregnant, breastfeeding, you know, postpartum women, and also infants and children up to the age of five who they um, believe are at nutritional risk. And... You can actually notice this next time you go grocery shopping. If you look in the corner of some of the um, price tags, you'll see a tiny little wick stamp over there. Just be mindful whenever you go grocery shopping that you don't purchase products um, that have the wick label on them. Or at least, you know, try buy a different brand or something because this is um, products that people who are receiving WIC benefits can get. And once it runs out, it's not going to be back until the end of the month. So that's just something to be mindful about. That's why I've been seeing a lot on the air and as people reminding others about that and people reacting very positively, which is, you know, very nice to see. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess now that we've gone over a little bit about, you know, the various, um, I guess, uh, you know, food programs and healthcare programs, Medicare and Medicaid and housing programs, I guess, um, I think we already went over CHIP, right? Yeah, yeah, we went over CHIP. Okay, perfect. So I guess I can probably start jumping into more, um, you know, cash assistance type programs as well. So I think before I start talking about, you know, various types of cash assistance that people receive, um, I first want to talk a little bit about what, it, you know, the definition of welfare is. So a lot of times, again, you know, you hear people talking about a welfare queen. I mean, you also hear the word entitlement thrown around a lot. So before I go into specific programs, I just wanted to start by discussing the difference between welfare and entitlement, because I feel like it, there's a little bit of a, a confusion there sometimes. So welfare is kind of a generic term for any kind of benefit in our country that's determined based on me means or needs. So whenever, whenever you see a program that's based on, um, you know, how much income you have or how many how much resources you have, that's generally considered welfare. Whereas an entitlement, on the other hand, is something that's not based on necessity, 
but that's based on something that you are entitled to when you meet certain criteria, criteria regardless of your financial, um, your, your financial resources. So an entitlement would be something like Social Security, where based on your work history and based on how many work credits you have accumulated over your career, once you turn you know, at least 62 or younger in some ages based on disability, you will then receive a certain benefit that's calculated based on your work history and your pay history. And you get that benefit regardless of, generally speaking, regardless of how much you were making at the time. So you could be making, you know, a million dollars an hour when you're 66 and you still can get Social Security. It, it doesn't uh, scale down based on how much you make. So with that distinction made, um, I guess I, I first want to talk a little, bit, a little bit about the various types of welfare. And then I'll talk about how those are complemented by more entitlement type programs like Social Security or, you know, unemployment insurance and, and things like that. So to start with welfare, so we've already talked about a lot of, you know, welfare benefits. When you think of Section 8, 8 housing or SNAP and WIC or, you know, CHIP and Medicaid, all these benefits are considered welfare because they are targeted benefits that based on your financial resources, they are going to help you meet specific needs. So for example, you know, SNAP and WIC help you meet nutritional needs. Um, Section 8 helps you meet housing needs. Um, CHIP and Medicaid help you meet uh, healthcare needs. So all of these programs are definitely considered welfare. And these programs, like I said, meet specific targeted needs. Then there are also more general welfare programs that instead of targeting a specific you know, human need, they provide direct cash assistance to individuals where they can then choose what they need to spend the money on based on the needs of their individual family. So when you think direct cash assistance, you know, if I'm if you're if you're looking at, you know, a single mother of two, she might have a lot of you know, needs where she cannot meet those needs on her own because she's working a lot and she doesn't have time or the financial resources to do so. But, you know, existing programs such as SNAP and WIC, they might not meet those needs entirely. So maybe, for example, she needs, you know, money for gas, or maybe she can't afford her rent one month. You know, when you have all of these kind of interlocking benefit programs, there are bound to be gaps. And that's where these direct cash assistance programs come in. So there are generally speaking, you know, four or five um, uh, cash assistance programs that I guess are the largest in the country. So one of those is called, um, you know, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, you know, TANF. So this is a federal program that divides funds across to every state. I mean, every state gets an allotment each year where they can then develop any number of programs that they see fit to assist um, needy families, as you might guess by the name. So, you know, different states have different programs that fall under this umbrella of TANF. Connecticut, for example, has the Temporary Family Assistance TFA program that's funded by TANF. Um, and this provides direct cash assistance to needy families based on financial need. So, you know, a, lo- a lot of states have this kind of program based on TANF where um, they will provide direct cash assistance um, with these funds. Um, Connecticut in particular also has a number of other programs that are funded by TANF, such as job training programs um, and, you know, addiction and mental health treatment programs, which are also um, very good to have. But when you talk about welfare, I guess we're that's more concerned with the direct cash assistance programs under TANF. Then in addition to that, you see things like the earned income tax credit. So, of course, we have the earned income tax credit at the federal level, which provides a sliding scale tax credit that's refundable to taxpayers based on how much they earned income they have in a given year. So earned income is something like, you know, anything you see on a W-2 or on a 1099 form. So for example, if you work for Walmart, maybe, and you get a paycheck at the end of every month, 
or at the every two weeks, um, that is all earned income. And at the end of the year, as long as you had above a certain amount of earned income and below a maximum amount of earned income, you can be eligible for that earned income tax credit. Um, that tax credit also goes up based on the number of dependents you have. So if you have several children, for example, you might yet be eligible for a higher credit than if you're you know, single and living alone. But regardless, you know, these kind of tax credits on both the federal and you know, equivalent tax credits on the state level serve as a kind of um, you know, direct cash assistance program because, again, they are refundable. So if you file your taxes at the end of the year and you are eligible for the earned income tax credit, you might actually receive a check from the Department of the Treasury or you know, Connecticut Department of Revenue Services or whatnot um, with money funded by the Earned Income Tax Credit Program. And that can then help you meet your expenses. Finally, um, another one of the large cash assistance programs is SSI. Um, I believe that's Supplemental, um, and I'm blanking on the acronym right now, Supplemental Security Income. So Supplemental Security Income is a social security program that is not um, an entitlement, but it's a welfare program. So it is not based on your work history, unlike all of the other social security programs, but rather it's a means-tested program. So if you are above the age of 65, or if you have a disability, um, you may be eligible to receive benefits under SSI. Um, and the means testing is fairly strict for SSI. So for example, generally speaking, you need to have less than $2,000 of um, resources, financial resources like cash or investments uh, before you can be eligible for SSI. So SSI benefits are very strict and they're for people who are very needy and you know need um, direct cash assistance to fund their daily needs. Um, and, and that's a great benefit, um, absolutely. Um, and again, it's not based on your work history. It's just based on solely whether you need it or not. So I guess one point I want to make here is we have all these direct cash assistance programs um, and they are definitely complementary to those specific needs programs we talked about earlier. Because again, benefits and the benefit scheme is so complex that there will always be gaps in um, whether people's needs are being met or not. And these kinds of direct cash benefits help meet those gaps because cash is fungible. If you get $100, you can use that for whatever you need at the moment. And when you're thinking about federal, the federal government, um, a lot of times it's not the most efficient. So... You know, if, if you're depending on SNAP to meet your nutritional needs for one month, and maybe that SNAP, those SNAP benefits are delayed because of some kind of eligibility, you know, hookup, um, you can then not hook up, um, whatever, like it's delayed for some reason. Maybe you have direct cash assistance that can help meet, you know, a week gap for you. So I think these direct programs are very important. So <clears throat> in addition to welfare programs, we also have these entitlement programs as well. So these are not based on need at least not entirely. They are based on the money that you have put into the system. So for example, work history. So two of the main, major entitlement programs in the United States are Social Security and of course, Medicare. So Social Security and Medicare, on um, every paycheck that you get, you, are, you will see taxes for Social Security and Medicare taken out. Um, and if you're self-employed, you'll be paying self-employment taxes at the end of the year, which then fund Social Security and Medicare. So throughout your working life, you are put, putting money into the Social Security and Medicare programs. And then once you meet certain requirements, either based on age for retirement or based on um, disability for disability benefits, you may then be eligible to receive benefits from Social Security or healthcare under Medicare. So these benefits are not only based on need. So you could be the neediest person in the world, but if you have not contributed into the system, if you have not worked, you generally speaking are not going to be eligible to receive Social Security or Medicare benefits. Um, of course, there are exceptions. So for example, 
you know, if you were a child who was disabled before the age of 22, um, and you've never worked a day in your life, you still might be able to receive benefits based on your parents' earning records. So there are kind of, um, I guess, exceptions here where maybe a child can be, can have their benefits determined based on their parents' records or vice versa. Um, and there are also survivors' benefits available for family. But generally speaking, these entitlements are based on your work history. So unless you have a survivor's benefit or a family benefit, if you haven't worked, you're not eligible for Social Security and Medicare. And it's a similar kind of situation for unemployment insurance and workers' comp. Um, unemployment insurance is paid out when you um, are terminated from a job involuntarily. Um, and of course, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, changes, last minute changes to unemployment insurance based on COVID. Um, and then workers' comp is paid out if you are injured on the job. And both of these um, benefits can help for people who are not retired and they're not disabled, but they're either unable to work or they're unable to find a job because they're terminated or injured. So that those unemployment insurance workers' comp programs are also considered entitlement programs, um, and they are funded by um, people's contributions during their working life. So that's kind of a good, I guess, overarching summary of, of the various welfare and entitlement programs we have in the country. Um, and, you know, I, I hope you see maybe, like, the concept of a welfare queen, you're talking about these programs, doesn't really seem very realistic to me. Um, you know, putting fraud aside, at least for the entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, unemployment insurance, workers' comp, you're only getting money out of these programs if you pump money in. So, you know, for Social Security, for example, you're not going to get any money out of it unless you're severely disabled or you are at retirement age, at least age 62. So, I mean, I think the idea that there are people who are receiving, you know, Social Security payments or unemployment payments and kind of, you know, living off the government dole, um, I just, that doesn't seem very realistic to me. Um, and I think the occurrence of those kinds of um, cases are relatively low compared to the number of people who are receiving these benefits legitimately, um, you know, either because they are retired or disabled or, you know, in the case of unemployment insurance, because they're between jobs. So I think... You know, that's something that we'll go into a little more later on in the episode, again, when we talk about the idea of a welfare queen. But I think it's just important to note that a lot of these benefits are either, you know, so are short-lived enough where people are not able to abuse them and, you know, live off the government dole, uh, you know, with heavy air quotes, or they are based solely on work history, whereby someone is, um, if someone's receiving these benefits, they must have already put money into the system. They paid their dues, so to speak. But yeah, I, mean, I guess that's just kind of a good uh, a summary of what welfare entitlements are available in the United States. Yeah, I just, yeah, I also just realized that we've been discussing this whole episode. We've been referring, referring to, to the welfare queen, but at the same time, we've also never actually um, described what the welfare queen is. So I'm sorry about that. Um, so the welfare queen, um, it's a fairly derogatory term that refers to women who allegedly misuse or collect like excessive amounts of like welfare payments that we went through, you know, committing fraud, child endangerment, manipulating the system. And the lovely person who coined this phrase was Ronald Reagan. And he did this. Um, yeah. Surprising. surprising. That, that man did some wrong, really. <laughs> but, um, don't even get me started about Reagan. Um, <laughs> so back during his 1976 um, presidential campaign, he coined the term welfare queen, um, referring to 
a woman named Linda Taylor who was charged with um, ultimately committing about $8,000 in fraud, um, collecting welfare checks through two different aliases. Um, she was also um, investigated for kidnapping and baby trafficking, suspected for like multiple murders. She wasn't charged for that. That's a whole other thing. But Reagan um, used this, um, never mentioned her by name, but came up with this trope of a welfare queen who, you know, they're all committing um, this kind of fraud and manipulation. He is very specifically referring to African-American women when he discusses welfare queen. And this whole, like, stigmatizing label has just really caused a lot of issues. You know, now, like Daniel and I um, said earlier, now people look down on um, people who collect welfare because of stigmatizing um, labels like this. And, like, women can't even stay on welfare indefinitely because TANF was put into place back in 96. But this still remains a huge trope whenever we discuss poverty and welfare and all that. So like Daniel was saying, like, this isn't real. You know, people don't like, yeah, people will scam the system. There will always be people who scam the system, but like fraud levels are very low and it doesn't, this doesn't cause people to like mooch off the government at all. These are people who legitimately need it. And also the biggest receiver of at least like SNAP benefits and all that kind of stuff, majority of them are children. So are they welfare queens now because they need to eat and receive health insurance? You know, I guess that's up to you. I don't see it that way at all. And yeah, fraud is just kind of a fact of life. You know, it's always, it's always going to happen, like I said, but does that mean that we should really get rid of a bunch of benefit programs because Reagan use one story from back in 1974 and create this whole trope that now a bunch of people will use to stigmatize the idea of poverty and welfare? Real questions. Absolutely. And I think what, what you just said is very important to kind of underscore. All of these cash assistance programs that we've mentioned, like uh, the temporary, um, you know, 10F, um, temporary assistance for needy families or earned income tax credit, all of these pro well, uh, we'll talk about the earned income tax credit separately. But you know, a lot of these cash assistance programs are inherently time limited. You can't stay on them forever. Um, and other programs, even like SNAP, have work requirements. So you cannot receive SNAP long term if you are not um, either working or attempting to work. With again some exceptions for children and people who are disabled. So, you know, I, I don't think it's possible for someone you know ignoring fraud for a second. I don't think it's possible for someone to live, you know, a luxurious life of, of comfort and, uh, you know, and luxuries based on, on government checks. I just don't think that exists. And of course, like you mentioned, there is fraud. Um, and, and that's kind of a fact of life. Fraud is the cost of doing business. Um, you know, ask any business in the world from a bank to an e-commerce website to Amazon.com. And everyone's going to tell you that X percent of our business is fraud. Um and that's kind of the human existence, right? There are people who are always going to lie. People who are always going to try and scam. All we can do is say, okay, we're expecting X percent, you know, of our payments to be fraud. And we're going to do our best. And we're going to have programs in place to try and um, discourage or catch that fraud. Now, 
And while I do think that that's a good thing to do, and while I absolutely think that resources should be dedicated to, you know, preventing and rooting out fraud, we also have to make sure that we're not, you know, we're not doing that at the expense of, you know, dismantling the programs entirely. So, for example, when you look at um, the COVID unemployment um, program right now, where unemployment has been greatly expanded to self-employed individuals, independent contractors, et cetera, millions of people across the country are making unemployment claims. And because we're so concerned about fraudulent claims and about people lying to get benefits they don't deserve, we're taking weeks and weeks and weeks and sometimes months to process their claims and preventing people from getting the benefits that they need. So for example, North Carolina right now is is processing less than 70% of claims within three weeks, which might sound good, but then you think about the fact that 30% of people who are filing claims get $0 in unemployment um, insurance within those first three weeks after filing. And that's three weeks where they might not be able to afford um, to, you know, to pay rent or to afford the basic necessities of life. So I think, you know, of course, rooting out fraud is important and rooting out scammers are important. But with that said, I think it's at best a secondary goal. The primary goal has to be ensuring that people who deserve benefits get them in a timely and efficient manner. And I think at least to me, when you're talking about less than 5% of payments going to, you know, fraudulent recipients, um, I I think to me, that's always going to be the most important goal, getting people the money they need. And then afterwards, once that's done, we can then figure out, you know, rooting up or or discouraging fraud. And I will also say, you know, those 5% of payments that go to unintended recipients, most of those overpayments are not actually fraud. They're in fact miscalculations um, because of an IT glitch or these people um, did not input or interpret information correctly. In other words, there are errors on the part of the government, not on the part of applicants. So, oh. you know, yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting, uh, I guess, catch there. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, welfare queens or when you talk about, you know, 5% of payments going to unintended recipients, um, it's often important to think about, you know, what the root of those unintended payments are. Is it because people are lying and trying to gain the system? Or is it because, um, you know, the systems are not, capable of accurately calculating payments and they're er- erroneously sending people too much money sometimes. So I, oh, I guess yeah. that's also important. If, if you've ever filled out like a government benefit, like application or anything, they are genuinely really confusing and you really do have to like look into it and like be careful with every single question because at least for me, I am absolutely scared to ever be um you know accused of like tax fraud or something like that so i always get really scared filling out my benefit forms i'm currently on unemployment because i lost my job fun fun times in the pandemic um and filling out the unemployment sheet i had to reach out to my coworkers for help because they regularly have to um file for unemployment over the summers and everything because you know dining halls aren't necessarily open on university campuses over summertime um, very few people stay there. So majority of people will go on a brief stint of unemployment. You can only get unemployment for 13 weeks anyway. So just about like three months, pandemic extended that to six months now. But like these, you're not, you're not going to stay on it forever unless you're working. And I had to reach out to them for help to figure out what was going on um, with like how did I fill my sheet and everything because they were asking very confusing questions. And like Daniel was saying, like the small amount of fraud could easily just be IT errors. It could be people not understanding the application. And that's just a whole nother thing that we can like discuss, you know, educating people on 
benefits and can they receive them? How do they receive them? Like I said before, I worked in a Congress office and people would reach out all the time trying to get, you know, energy assistance, um, where um, the energy company will offset their bill a little bit just to make sure that they still have AC and heat going in their households, um, trying to help people find Section 8 housing. This is all very confusing stuff. And I'm glad that, um, you know, legislative offices are there to try to help out people more and more. Connecticut is very good about um, helping out people with benefits and everything. It's all on one singular web page. It was not probably as difficult to fill just an unemployment um, insurance form, especially now since they simplified a lot of it for people filing for the first time like myself. But I imagine in other states and with other things, it's very confusing. It's why I had so many people reaching out to me when I worked in the Congress office saying like, how do I fill an energy assistance form? Who do I reach out to? Like, where do I find Section 8 housing? How do I apply for SNAP? Like, what's going on? I need help with this. And that's just a whole nother issue that isn't really looked at a lot. I know that a lot of people will complain like, oh, people can just barely qualify for benefits and still get them. Like, you don't know, you might actually qualify for some benefits if you are lower income, if you have a lot of children, you need help. It's just people aren't being educated on what the requirements are because it's so different for every single program. States might have um, different eligibility requirements based on income because, you know, like what you can get, what you can get for rent in Connecticut is vastly different from what you can get in, like Louisiana or something because property values are so different. So, you know, income um, requirements might be different. Work requirements are the same overall, but it's just it's something that people aren't educated on. And I feel like that's not discussed a lot. Absolutely. And as we kind of come towards the end of the episode today, I think that's maybe a good point to close on. I mean, you can have all the benefits in the world, but if people don't know about them or people don't know how to apply for them, um, they're not going to be as effective as they could be. So I think having, you know, resources in place to educate, um, to educate people who might be eligible for benefits and make sure they know how to receive them, how to apply for them, um, how to effectively make use of those benefits. I think that's as important as putting the benefits in place in the first place. Because, you know, again, if people don't know about them, they can't use them. So I think, you know, a lot of states do a good job on this and some states do a not so good job on this. I think for Connecticut in particular, you kind of mentioned that Connecticut's generally pretty good about this. If you go to connect.ct.gov, um, you can apply for a variety of benefits on that web one website, including, you know, TANF, you can apply for SNAP, um, you can apply for many benefits just on one page filling out. Um, one initial application, I believe there, there are different applications for different you know, benefits, but it, that website will at least tell you where you need to go and it's all in one place. Other states, um, you know, don't have that kind of resource available and people are kind of left to hunt for these benefits on their own um, or, you know, go to a social worker or um, someone of that nature to help them with it. I will say that's also a good resource. I mean, you see this a lot in hospitals in particular, but people who are in very bad or homeless shelters, for example, People who are in vulnerable situations will often gain access to resources that will help them navigate, um, you know, this landscape of benefits and make sure they know where to apply, how to use the benefits, et cetera. Um, but I think expanding those kinds of educational opportunities and making sure uh, maybe even like a high school course or something, everyone knows what's available to them, I, I think is definitely a, a worthy pursuit um, to, to focus on in, today. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so I think we're uh, we're just about at time. So unless you have anything else, Kylie, I think we can call it a day. Um, I mean, I'm just gonna echo that you know, obviously, I hope you've learned at the end of this that welfare queens don't exist. You know, every, everyone should be viewed equally, whether or not they receive government benefits or not. You you'll know if you'll ever have to receive government benefits. I didn't know that I would ever be receiving unemployment. Now I do because I have no source of income right now. And you just never know what situation you're going to end up in. I bet the people who, you know, have to get Section 8 housing, have to receive SNAP benefits, I don't think that they imagine that this is what they wanted either. But they're just grateful that that's there for them. And I feel like we should echo that same sentiment to them. You know, I'm so grateful that government benefit programs exist because it means that millions of Americans, a lot of them children, like are being taken care of. We're able to give so much back into the economy through this. I think these programs are wonderful and that we should be expanding on them. We should be taking care of everyone and making sure that everyone gets what they need to be able to survive. You know, we shouldn't have to have this mentality of pull yourself up by the bootstraps because these people are, you know, they, they just have like children, they have extenuating circumstances. They can't be working all these hours and at the same time, take care of their children or, you know, they have a disability. They can't be working all that kind of stuff. We need to just be more compassionate as a society and realize that these benefit programs are really wonderful and do so much for our economy. And we shouldn't be looking down on people who receive them. Yep, absolutely. I mean, you're only one pandemic away from, from, you know, several million people being unemployed, right? I mean, it's it's distance between unemployed and employed and, you know, um, financially independent and financially, um, you know, not independent or needing assistance or needing help. It's smaller than a lot of people would like to think. So absolutely. I think, you know, just be, I mean, receiving government benefits does not make someone any less of a person. It doesn't make them any less um, entitled to respect um, and I think, you know, this idea of the welfare queen and, and people who are scamming the system and, and judging anyone who, you know, collects unemployment insurance, for example, or anyone who collects SNAP benefits, I think that kind of concept absolutely has to go. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping, you know, this pandemic is maybe a, um, I don't know, gives people a little bit more insight into how quickly someone could be put in a bad situation and need help. So, absolutely. Great, great. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think that's, uh, we can call it a wrap. Yeah, absolutely.